Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi there, and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. I'm Alison McGovern, Member of Parliament for Rural South and the Chair of Progress. And this is the Progressive Britain podcast, the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive politics has much to offer the modern world. This week, I'm in my home city of Liverpool, and I'm joined by two very good friends of Progress, Frank McKenna, who's the Chief Executive of Downtown in Business, a business membership organisation started in Liverpool, but now that operates across the UK. And Frank was once leader of the Northwest Regional Assembly, so has lived through the highs and lows of the impact of Westminster decision-making on the rest of the country. And we're also joined by Tris Brown, long-term political commentator. We'll be talking about Tory party conference this week and what we should expect, which is not very much, obviously. And we'll also be discussing what happens next on the biggest issue facing our country in the next six months, the Brexit endgame. So we're here in Liverpool, which is a football mad city and regular listeners of the Progressive Britain podcast uh, will know that Connor and I, especially when Richard is not around, we always like to squeeze in a little bit of football if we possibly can. So I thought we'd do a bit of an opening question, guys. You know, politics is a bit chaotic at the moment. And I, for one, think that we could do with a firmer hand on the tiller and, you know, football managers, whether it's Sir Alex Ferguson with the hairdryer treatment or whatever, are known for uh, their effective leadership. So forget politicians for a minute. Frank, let's start with you first. If you could pick any football manager of any team or any era and put them straight into number 10 to lead the country, who would you choose? Oh, straight into number 10. I thought you were going to say into Goodison Park. And obviously (laughs) I'd go back to Howard Kendall, who was our most successful manager. Um, I would say that at the moment you couldn't go far wrong with Pep Guardiola. Okay. Stylish. Yeah, a bit of class. Diplomatic. Yeah. Knows when to tell people off at the appropriate time, but clearly will be able to negotiate with our European counterparts in a much more uh, amiable manner than is the case with the clowns and the Muppets who are doing so on yeah, our yeah. behalf at the moment. And a bit of European flair. I mean, he'd be good at negotiating in Europe, wouldn't he? Trace, who would you pick? Well, it's got to be Shankly, hasn't it? Values and success together. And quite frankly, the man could put a bond mode or two together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he would do good speeches. Yeah, exactly. Good speeches, good at the sound clips. He's there. But I'm also going to pay credit to uh, Julier because he was in uh, Liverpool on Friday at a, a cardiovascular initiative thing at the town hall. And I just think for someone of his success and disappearing, you know, kind of, 
it, with that kind of reputation, the fact that he was still willing to come back to Liverpool, come back and sit in a room full of doctors to talk about his experience being treated at the uh, uh, heart and chest, I think it was, it, uh, you know, there's something very classy about being willing to, to, to do that. So, you know, shout out to Julier. I think it's interesting, like you both have picked Europeans, uh, people who are a bit intelligent, and I think that says a lot about British politics. Frank, I'm going to surprise you by choosing a former Everton manager. Oh? I'm going to pick Mo Marley, who took Everton ladies from obscurity. I mean, when, when women's mm. football was really in a mess. Yes. And she built a great team there, took them to the top of the league. And I think that given our country is in, in a bit of a state at the moment, actually somebody who knows what it's like to have to do the hard yards uh, is what we need. So I would pick Mo Marley. Can I just make a very, very quick point on the follow-up to what Tris said about uh, Julio? One of the best political speeches I ever heard, and it was actually at a Labour Party event, was by Sir Alex Ferguson. So Alex spoke very much about, you know, the importance of youth, of building teams, of teamwork, of his socialist principles and background. The only sad thing on the night was... It was a dinner to raise funds for the Labour Party and Ed Miliband was supposed to be the main speaker and he absolutely knocked Miliband's speech out of the park. So Alex stole the show. And there was a guy who is a fanatical Liverpool supporter, hates Manchester United with a vengeance, called Paul Flanagan, who Tris will know well. And at the end of it, I always remind him of this, was queuing up to get a selfie with Sir Alex because (laughs) Ferguson was so good on the night. It's funny, isn't it? You know, politicians can make good speeches, but perhaps actually we can't compete with some of the uh, some of the sporting heroes. So I think everyone's looking to Gareth Southgate at the moment, aren't they, in terms of his leadership as well? I'm wearing a waistcoat right now. There we go. Waistcoat chic has hit politics. Okay, so let's move on um, to the first topic of today, Tory party conference. So it's kicked off in Birmingham. I think there is a bit of a sense of anticipation, not least because of the war at the moment between Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees-Mogg and Theresa May. And, you know, her kind of, whether it's a group of Remainers or whether it's a group of people who are just taking a more practical approach to Brexit, it's hard to say. Frank, what exactly is going on and what is going to happen with these Tories? Backdrop to the Tory party conference is Opportunity Knocks, right? A 1970s entertainment programme that lost its way, that is totally irrelevant, much like the Tory party of 2018, in my opinion. So we are not seeing a government producing anything this week. We are seeing a leadership contest with the Conservative Party conference as the backdrop to that contest and very little, if anything, actually addressing and focusing on some of the issues that this country faces. What about May's burning injustices, though? She comes into power. She stands on the steps of Downing Street. She talks about these burning injustices, you know, race issues, poverty Where's that gone? I genuinely feel sorry for Teresa. I know that might be an unpopular opinion in in some places, but I feel sorry for her because we think back to the general election. She called uh, the last one. She called, decided to call general election. Everything said, all the polls, popular opinion, you know, everything said she was going to have this huge majority. And then she decided that she was going to use that majority to sort social care. And if there's one thing in this country that really needs sorting, it's social care. And that, for me, that was such a brave decision. There's a whole West Wing episode about it being the, third, you know, the live wire of politics and all that, and how it kills anyone who gets tries to get involved. 
And I genuinely think she decided that she could do it with a huge majority, which, you know, a couple of years out of Brexit and all that is a really brave thing to do. And she ended up completely sacrificing her entire majority uh, in the general election because because of the, the unpopularity of her social um, care policy. Yeah, there's a lot of pity. I've forgotten your question. I was talking, because I feel so sorry for her. What, it, what is going on? I almost think blind panic, to be honest. There's so much where every time they turn, there's somebody opposing it. This is modern politics today, social media, uh, too many opinions. Everyone's opinion is equal, equal. And I just think if you don't have a solid core of supporters behind you, a solid rock of where you're trying to take things and what your opinion is, in a sense, it, you, you, you just can't get anywhere because there is always going to be someone who opposes what you're trying to do. And I think she's run like head first straight into that wall of, of opposition, whether it's, you know, out the, the, the Labour Party in opposition or opposition within her party, she's just run head straight first into it. No real plan. And it's just all falling apart. So we're going to come to Brexit in, in a second. But is this essentially the problem, Frank, that basically there's just an absence of a plan and it's just hard to see where this Tory party is going? Well, it's obsessed with Europe isn't it? I mean, it's seen off every Conservative Party leader in living memory. I mean, even Thatcher in the end fell victim to the European Union and the problems that the Conservative Party have around the European question. So they are obsessed with it. Nothing else appears to be uh, seriously on the agenda this week. I mean, I take issue with Chris to an extent in terms of feeling sympathy for Theresa May, given Windrush as just one example of where her policy when she was Home Secretary, has led to abject misery for people. And the best that she could do on Sunday in the weekend programme with Martha Icing was shrug her shoulders and say sorry. And the thing that, that really uh, frustrates me about Theresa May as a political leader is that she appears to have no conviction about anything whatsoever. Now, I grew up during the Thatcher years politically, and there was nobody that I wanted to see out of office, out of power, as much as I wanted to see Thatcher gone. But i tell you the one thing about Thatcher, if she believed in something, she would stand on that platform and she would argue, forgive the pun, until she was blue in the face. And she stuck to so, her guns. So the, Theresa May yeah. knows Brexit's a bad deal, did a deal with Dominic Grieve in Parliament, reneged on it within hours because of the lunatics and the backwardsmen within her own parliamentary party. I don't sympathise with her. She's weak. I think she's unfocused. I think she is the worst prime minister that we've had since Cameron. And to be honest... <laughs> it's I a really, target-rich environment in the Tory party. I, I, I do really think that, you know, the, the, the time for feeling sympathy for Theresa May is long gone, given the opportunities that she's had to actually tell the British people what the truth is. And let's be fair, Brexit aside, Hammond is announcing more cuts, more austerity. Now, does anybody seriously think that austerity has worked for the UK economy? We're in a place in Liverpool which has suffered from that 10 years of austerity. We're not the only city, but if we get another £1.3 billion worth of cuts, which is what's being talked about, is Liverpool City Council going to be able to survive that? And, you know, for me, failed economic policies are actually being ignored by the media and by most of the population because of Brexit. 
it's a convenient excuse in some respects. Let's move on to Brexit in a second. I'm going to ask you both one uh, question to wrap up, which is, you know, and this is this is a hard one because as far as I can make out, Tory party conference has become a sort of like fashion parade of anybody who thinks that they might in the future want to be conservative leader. And it's also hard because, you know, we're all of the left and coming at it from a progressive point of view. But if you had to pick who you thought might be, you know, a dark horse, who who should the who should the clever money on be for the next leader? Can I say something that is really unpopular in Merseyside, who I think has got half a chance? Esther McVeigh. No. Female, regional accent, attractive in some people's eyes, and somebody who has not been talked about as a potential leader, similar to Cameron. The darlings of the Tory party, think about them. Heseltine, yeah. Portillo, Johnson. You know, those other two didn't get anywhere near the leadership. Esther McVeigh, as a dark horse candidate, for me, good chance. Tris, is it going to be Esther for leader? I I, 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 I think my answer says it all, really. I, I will say this, though. I've always long believed that in all of these competitions, especially in the Conservative Party, I mean, who actually, nobody knew who David Cameron was when he entered the contest. The reality is, especially in the Conservative Party, the uh, the big heavyweights, they blow themselves out and someone comes from behind. Esther McVeigh, you know, certainly on paper, has all of the, uh, you know, the, the, the requisites for the job. I think her track record on welfare, though, is going to be ultimately really difficult for her. What we don't know, of course, is when, when that time comes, what is the Conservative Party going to be like? Because the Labour Party changed overnight in that selection uh, when uh, Jeremy Corbyn won. And we, you know, there's a sense of all the, everything we assumed that would be the basis on which a leader would be chosen suddenly got thrown out and a whole new rule book came in. And I've got a gut feeling that the same thing is going to happen with the Conservative Party. And some of the conversations they are having in the conferences, you can see that there are people trying to get to grips with who is their membership? Remember 2010, the whole future conservatives thing was like a, a war boss. You know, it was a, you know, it was this kind of uh, it, you know, machine that could deliver. For, and then like two years later, it just didn't exist. It just had gone. A lot is changing even within political parties. And I've got no idea who's going to come from the Tory party. It's everything to uh, play for. I mean, it's wrong to obviously dwell on other people's misery, but it does look, especially when they're in government and we're not, but it does look pretty chaotic from the outside. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm June Sarpong. And if you like the Progressive Britain podcast, then we ask you to subscribe, rate or review it on iTunes because that's how we reach a larger audience. And that's what progressive politics is all about. So from the Tories to their own obsession, the European Union and Brexit, this is going to be the issue that really dominates politics over the next six months in the rundown to March and what is at the moment anyway set to be our exit from the European Union. So we need to be ready for that. We need to understand what happens now. And in fact, from the point of view of the Conservatives, Frank, Theresa May with her checkers deal, this kind of approach that says, you know, we'll sort of have a common rule book, um, be involved insofar as it suits us, but we're still not sure about freedom of movement and uh, we still want all of these opt-outs. From that point of view, Theresa May seems to have done the impossible and united Jacob Rees-Mark and Michelle Barnier (laughs) in them both thinking that it is, you know, never going to work and thinking that that is deeply unpopular. Um, you said on on the Twitter.com um, recently that you, she was more interested in placating her Brextremists than negotiating a serious deal with her EU counterparts. So what does that mean? Headlong to no deal? Well, it seems to me that Theresa May is more interested in staying in 10 Diamond Street for as long as possible than actually having a serious conversation with the European negotiators. Now, we don't know what's said behind the scenes, but it seemed to me from the body language and much of the commentary after uh, Salzburg a couple of weeks ago, that those conversations are not much different from what we're hearing publicly. Now, you know, there's a couple of things here that I think we need to be careful of. First of all, um, if we accept that the government's position at the moment is both untenable and chaotic, then we also have to accept that the European Union's uh, response to what was um, clearly uh, a poor performance from the Prime Minister and the British contingent a couple of weeks ago was not the best either because it plays right into that uh, jingoistic, you know, we're all Brits, we stick together, we're not having the Europeans taking the mickey out of us. So I think the European negotiating team as well need to take a serious look at themselves because if we are going for a situation where in Parliament, no deal, I can't believe that Parliament, as daft as it is at the moment, present company excludes. No, no, it's, it's all daft. Is, I accept that. Is going to to vote a no or allow a no deal to go through. Checkers seems to me, from any reasonable uh, perspective, to be dead. And so, where does that leave us? And therefore, you know, I am fused for the first time in a long time that a people's vote is a potential possibility. That, I think that's got to be right, hasn't it, Tris? Are, are we effectively in deadlock with the EU negotiators, in deadlock in the House of Commons, or can you see a way through? Uh, well, no, I certainly can't see a way through. And if I, I think you're absolutely right, Frank. The, the question is, is there other things going on that we can't see that we're not privy to? 
And it does indeed look like uh, at the end of it, everything we're seeing pu- publicly is more or less a reflection of what's happening privately. And, you know, the, the statement about how Czechos is dead from the European Union kind of pretty much put the end on that. Uh, I mean, you know, Vago Frank, you've called them extremists. I'm calling this a dog's Brexit. <laughs> um, it, it, just, it just seems all over the place. And some of the, the information that we're get, beginning to feed back to us, certainly as a city, about what a no-deal Brexit is actually going to mean for us. You, you honestly pray to high heavens that both civil servants and members of parliament and members of government all get how damaging a no-deal Brexit is really, really going to be. Uh, you know, and the, this, this country has been preoccupied by it as a bureaucracy for the last kind of 18 to 24 months. Things that should have got done haven't got done. Uh, you know, I think about the Royal Hospital in Liverpool. There's no way that should have taken this long to sort out. You know, we're talking to other cities like such as London. They're talking about how minor legislation that just can't even get tabled. There's just a complete uh, absence of any kind of activity or bureaucracy because they're all so busy with Brexit. But going forward, I, I honestly don't know. I, two weeks ago, I was so pessimistic about it. I really, really was. But I do think the vote at Labour Party conference has but it has the potential to really, really change the the, 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 step, the direction on what the next steps are. And what, why do you think that is? What is it about what Labour Party did at conference that helps us move on? It's all about the people's vote. And, it, and that vote in the Labour Party conference, I genuinely think was, it was not expected, but it was much bigger than anyone thought it was going to be. And I think for the first time, you've got a sense that when you give people an open opportunity to say what they want, they start talking about wanting another chance for themselves as people to review the deal. There's your answer to the democratic argument. People want to be seen and given a chance to look at a deal, but also the chance to say, actually, in contrast, we're better off staying in. I think that's right, Frank, wasn't it? I mean, the warmth in the conference hall when Keir said, and Remain will be on the ballot paper. I mean, that atmosphere, you know, I don't think there's been happiness like that in Labour Party conference halls for some years, has there? Well, it was a spontaneous standing ovation, wasn't it? And you don't get many of those at any political conference. Normally the standing ovations are well managed. Correct. (laughs) Correct. And, you know, I think that was a testament to the feeling within uh, conference, but also within the party. I mean, I don't think that the polls that suggest an 86% of Labour Party members support a, a people's vote are over-exaggerated at all. I have yet to meet a Labour Party member, I have to say, who wouldn't support a people's vote. My concern is twofold in terms of if we get to that point. Um, You know, our leadership have really got to uh, listen to the facts that we've seen emerge over the past two years about what leaving the European Union would look like. And let's not forget... Jeremy Corbyn's performance during the last referendum campaign, in fact, it shouldn't be described as a performance. He was absent without leave. And so he, MacDonald, What's and that others, expression? Present but not involved. Yeah, you know, they've got to step up. You know, seriously, they have got to step up because the damage that this would cause to Labour heartlands in particular, but the country as a whole, would be immeasurable. So we've got to change tack there. The other side of the same coin, though, And this is why I mentioned earlier, you know, the Europeans' reaction, you know, the photograph, the selfie, the cherry on the cake, all that sort of stuff, that's got to go. Because if you're talking to a voter in Sunderland who voted to come out of the European Union, one of the things I would guess they would say for their vote was the arrogance that they perceive Europe has. And so we really do 
need the Europeans to take account of the fact that, look, we got that decision wrong to come out, but there was lots of things that they've got wrong over the years that led people to that conclusion. Tris, haven't we got to take that on then? It's not just, um, it's not just Brexit, but it's also all of the reasons why Brexit happens. Haven't we got to work across Europe then to deal with those issues? We do. We also have to work in the country. I think Frank is absolutely spot on. There is, there are a lot of problems in this country, uh, you know, and there are a lot of people struggling and suffering and trying to get by day by day. And the question is, does anyone feel like they are being helped? And ultimately that is, you know, that there's a progressive agenda, which does help them. And I think we all believe as progressives that our agenda helps them more than anyone else. So we've got to do a better job of explaining how that job helps them. But then across Europe, I do, I do think you're right. But it's a hard sell, isn't it? I mean, we're so isolationist. We really do not want to open ourselves up and listen to Europeans talking about. Um, But when you travel and you start to see and you talk to other people from other countries, um, that sounds really patronizing when you go and talk to other people in other countries. But there is a sense of the modern world is more connected than it it ever has been at any other point in its history, Um, both in terms of its economy and socially, environmentally. And yet somehow we as a country still want to believe we can go it alone. You know, we're supposed to be a nation of shopkeepers, but if you can't sell to anyone, what's the point? We're also a small island that can't produce everything we need, but we were determined to close the borders down and stop people bringing stuff in. It's just kind of, on one level, there's uh, our, our very isolationist approaches, I think, actually the, the thing we have to get over the most so that we can hear what life is like in other places, particularly in the European Union. And I think, Alison, you know, what we have learned from the last referendum, surely, is that the project fear approach won't work. We've got to have some very positive reasons for people voting for the European Union. We didn't have that narrative in the last referendum. And so hopefully we've learned that lesson because actually if you're speaking to those people, Sunderland, Wigan, the Wirral, you know, Mm. lots of people who voted, not because they're racist, not because they've got some sort of stupid brain going on there, but because their lives are crap. Mm. And we've got to explain to them why actually staying in the European Union with a more progressive domestic agenda will actually help their lives. If we can't do that, then we're not only going to have a close vote. I think we'd win it, but it'd still be close. How long then are we bogged down with a people's vote for a third referendum? Yeah, we can't continually keep having this debate and this discussion. We've got to move on at some stage. And we've got to convince those people who voted for good reasons in their head, and you know they could articulate that now. We've got to explain to them why actually a progressive agenda coupled with the European Union that does need to be reformed, by the way, could help in the future. So a progressive agenda, and Tris, I was taken absolutely with what Francis O'Grady said at TUC. I thought the TUC Congress before Labour Party conference was a really pivotal moment because you had the trade union setting out their plan, if not a general election, then a people's vote. Francis O'Grady stepping up and saying, we will put the full weight of the trade union movement behind, you know, a people's vote and the case um, uh, for Remain. And that, in I felt, gave me hope that actually that progressive case would be made. I think the point is, we are seeing finally kind of evidence-based values statements about where we should be in the world and for me that's in the european union and for the trade unions ultimately are at the, at the they're at that fine line aren't they where people where companies start to say 
oh, well, we need to look at our future. We don't know where we're going to put our plants. We don't know where our staff are going to be. And trade unions are right at that cutting edge of, 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 of the knife edge, if you will, of the future for their, um, their members. So they're the ones who essentially have realized that it's their members who are most at risk from falling out of the European Union. And that's what I mean by evidence-based value statements. You, you, you take the evidence, you take a genuine look at the evidence, and then you decide on a value on the basis of that, not just come off the first thing off the top of your head because it kind of just feels good in your your your, your political kind of safe land. And that's the kind of Reese Mogg, Boris Johnson kind of claptrap we've been getting. But unfortunately, they've been getting traction with those kinds of statements. And to pick up on Frank's point, I just... There's a lot of learning we have to do about campaigning in the next six months, arguably, because social media, you know, I'm a little bit obsessed about this at the moment, but social media and the way we talk about politics is very negative. It's very, it's driven by negative statements. And I think the EU referendum was very much won because of the value of negative statements. Um, Project Fear worked, but for the other side. And if you're going to combat that, we all believe we need Project Hope. Project Hope really doesn't go so well on social media. So we're going to have to learn to campaign in a very different way. Okay, so I'm going to finish there, but not before I've asked you both another testing question. Uh, Evidence-based value statements, Trish says. Frank, you say we've got to offer people, you know, that whose lives are crap, uh, you know, a better future as we campaign to to stop Brexit. If each of you could pick one policy that would persuade people in and amongst a second Brexit referendum that we have got their best interests at heart and that we want to change our country for the better, what would it be? Come straight to me. That That's really, really tricky. Oh. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'll I tell you about the one that has shocked me the most, which is, uh, I probably be- better not tell you who it came from because it came from a civil servant, but it, uh, he was talking about the chemicals regulations and how in the European Union, it makes absolute sense to share resources across borders for locating and sourcing chemicals. And it sounds a bit, which is probably why it doesn't meet your criteria, because I don't know if you'd ever talk to the member of the public about this. I probably need to put it in a proper way. But the point is, if you if we scrap all of the chemicals regulations, you can't move any chemicals. And we're a small country. We don't have enough chemicals to make the things we make. So where do they come from? They come from the European Union. Our, almost our entire manufacturing industry could fall apart. And uh, do you remember when uh, the price of beer went up because we ran out of carbon dioxide? Multiply that by a thousand. That's the impact. There you go. That, there, there's my thing. Remember when the price of beer went up? Yeah. Yeah. Anything to do with beer prices. Anything to do with beer. The price of beer, Frank. What would yeah. your what would your one your your one policy point that's going to win it for the it's, campaign? It's, it's a tough question. Uh, a really good one, which is why I allow Tris to go first. Um, I honestly think we focus in on young people and the future for people's kids because actually, you know, we've got to explain to them why immigration is what they perceive as high. And one of the reasons immigration is high is because we have a huge skills gap in this country, which we have had, by the way, for 30 years. And we've got to explain to them that actually a progressive agenda, working with our European partners to to, to basically leverage that European union money that over the past 30 years has been used to rebuild our cities can now be used to rebuild our skills base and work with those kids so that our young people can take advantage of the opportunities and we do not need a huge immigrant population in future as i say as they perceive it i think the other thing is we've got to be a bit more honest and we've got to demonstrate some leadership 
And this is where Corbyn and Co come in and tell people the positives of immigration because they far outweigh the negatives. And so for me, you've got to start talking to people about the future, about positivity, but putting in real terms and saying your kid's future is going to be much better because we're actually going to invest in them to take advantage of the opportunities. Does that work though? Because genuinely, I guess, I, I mean, I don't disagree with anything you've just said, but it just feels like we've had so much of these conversations about immigration is good, immigration is good, all the evidence studies and it's in the Guardian all the time and so on. It, it, it is out there. And I just wonder whether there's, there's something where there's, for some reason people are tuning out that entire conversation. And I think it's got to be their direct experience with immigration and uh, there's an uncomfortability, isn't there, about the world they live in and that they shop in and walk around in. And is that the same as uh, what they used to be? It's very cultural. I think you're right about the future. I think if we can say, your kid, your child, what is the world they want to live in? Because if it's if it's like kicking around without a job or uh, this extremely low-level kind of skilled job, then that's that's the one we might be heading towards. But as a, as a vision for the country... It is about people uh, can earn quite a lot of money, even in high-grade manufacturing or, you know, you don't have to go to university. There are, there, there's a plethora of, of, of skills and work opportunities out there, but only if we're open enough to go and get them. And I, uh, So I think you're right about kids, but I'm, the immigration one, I just can't, I'm just not sure it gets traction in, anymore. But I think that I think the problem is, Tris, that actually, because we shy away from the immigration debate and discussion now, is the reason why people have the opinions they have. I don't think that we have demonstrated leadership on immigration, the question of immigration, for at least a decade. And I think that we have almost been guilty of playing the game, of thinking our voters are not going to want to hear this message, so we're not going to say it. So I don't think they've become deaf to it because I don't think the message has been there. I honestly think that there has been, and Chuck Ramuna said the other week, and I know he got some stick for this, you know, Labour Party's institutionally racist. It is. I'm sorry, but it is. We live in a city. How many black councillors have we got on Liverpool City Council? Forget females, right? Black councillors. How many Poles? How many Eastern? Right, we are institutionally racist. We've got to accept that, and we've got to argue why that is a problem that we have. But more importantly, in terms of talking to the outside world, we have to explain to them why immigration is a good thing. And, you know, when I talk to largely people who are in the 70s and beyond about, you know, well, why are foreigners over here taking all our jobs? There's two stories I talk to my mum's mates about, right? She's very unlike my mum. She voted remain. Right? Lots of her mates didn't. Who do you see in the NHS? What nationality are they? Any English people there? Not that many. Why do you think that is? Mm. They don't want the job. Lots of English people don't want the jobs. Those people who are qualified who are English have gone abroad because the working conditions are better. My daughter being an example of that. She's on the Gold Coast in Australia. Nurse. Right? You talk to those, those simple terms and all of a sudden the penny starts to drop. More importantly, businesses will tell you Go to Skelmers Day, right? New town in the northwest of England. Lots of factory work there. You speak to factory owners there. They are absolutely, to use a technical phrase, bricking it. Because lots of their workforce, Eastern European. They're not saying that there aren't people available in Skelmersdale to do those jobs. They're saying people in Skelmersdale will not do those jobs. And even if they give people the opportunity in Skelmersdale to do those jobs, 
Guess what? Absenteeism increases, right? People just don't turn into work. People don't want to know those jobs because they just haven't got that work. There's a huge cultural problem around this that we have to address and demonstrate some leadership around. And if we're all going to say, do you know what? Immigration's tough. It's a difficult issue. Our voters won't get it. Where are we going? So I have never knownly turned down an uh opportunity to talk about immigration. Having stood in a Labour Tory swing module three times, I've talked a lot about immigration, uh, but unfortunately we've run out of time. So I'm going to take uh, that discussion as an invitation to talk more about the price of beer and immigration (laughs) and our young people. And I think perhaps uh, the next time we get back around the table, um, we could do a whole another show on immigration because it is an absolutely crucial question. Um, but that's all we've got time for. Um, thanks very much for listening. Each week, Connor normally sets out our political pub quiz question, but he's back in London and I have seized control of all of the prizes and set the question. So here goes. It's the start of October. And on the 29th of this month, we now expect Philip Hammond to announce the budget amidst the ongoing Brexit turmoil. Ten years ago, on the 29th of October in 2008, we were mired in the financial crisis. But 20 years ago, on the 29th of October 1998, didn't pass either without controversy. So here's the question. Which Labour cabinet minister resigned 20 years ago this month? Frank, any clues? I'm struggling. I was uh, plumping for Frank Field. No, he wasn't in the cabinet, Tris. I, I honestly don't have a clue. So 18 months after the general election. Yeah. Uh, no, Graham Stringer. <laughs> no. Well, if you can do better than Tris and Frank, then send your answers to office at progressonline.org.uk or tweet at Connor Pope or at uh, Progress Online. And we'll choose someone who gets the answer to right to win a lovely Progress mug. Thanks again to my guests, Frank McKenna and Tris Brown. This has been the Progressive Britain podcast. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton, who produced this podcast.